please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 55 this morning, looking at verses 10 through 13. Using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 615 and 616. And if it also open up to our New Testament reading that we read this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 965. We'll be looking at the 2 Corinthians passage briefly as well this morning. Well, this is our third chapter, that we, our third sermon in chapter 55. And since it's been a few weeks since we were in Isaiah 55, let me give a brief recap of where we are. This chapter starts with a call. It starts with an invitation, an invitation to all who thirst. And it's a, a universal invitation. It's a universal invitation because we all thirst. We all hunger. And it's not talking about physical thirst. It's not talking about physical hunger. It's talking about spiritual thirst, spiritual hunger. And all of us, all of us due to the fact that we are made in the image of God, we have this spiritual hunger. We have this spiritual thirst. We have a, a God-shaped hole inside of each one of us. We all have an innate desire that cannot be satisfied with anything in this fallen world. It can only be satisfied by nothing less than God himself. And this invitation is to all. It's, it's a universal call to all who thirst. And the invitation is to come to the waters. It's an invitation to come really to the living waters. It's an invitation to come to Christ. And basically what we see here in Isaiah 55 is a call to the gospel. It is the gospel in this chapter. And this invitation to come to Christ is offered freely. It's offered to the one without money. It's offered to the one without price. But sadly, for many, this seems too easy. This seems too simple. And as such, what we do is we get distracted. Verse 2 says, we, we spend our money on that which is not bread and our labor on that which is not satisfied. We also saw that there is an urgency to this invitation. We are instructed in verse 6 to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. And implied in this command is that we are not to delay in coming to the Lord. We do not know how much longer this door of salvation will be open to us. We don't know how much longer the Lord will be near. We don't know how much longer he will be able to be found by us. We talked two weeks ago that there is a a real danger that if, if we neglect the light that the Lord has given to us, today if we hear his voice, And if we resist his grace, we harden our heart, we we refuse to see the light, there is a real danger that this light will be removed, and we will not be able to come to him. And we're told in verse 7 to repent. It says, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. We are to forsake our way of thinking, our, our course of life, which oppose God. And we are to adopt his ways, we are to adopt his thoughts. Our thoughts are to be his thoughts. Our ways are to be his ways. This is our safeguard. Repentance is our safeguard. This is what keeps us from hardening our hearts. This is what keeps us from, from failing to seek the Lord while he may be found. This is what keeps us from resisting to come to the waters, coming to Christ in the gospel. See, when our thinking is aligned with God's thinking, when our outlook is based on his outlook, then we're safe. Then, then, then we can be a mighty servant in the kingdom of God. Then we can bring God glory. But the question is, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we align our thinking with God's thinking? How do we align our ways? How do our ways become his ways? Right? Even, even as believers, even as those who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we still fight against submitting to his ways. 
We still insist on doing things our ways. I know I do. I'm sure it's the same is true with each one of us. Well, the last part of this chapter gives us the answer. And that's what we're going to look at today. The answer is God's word. The answer lies in the power of God's word. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 13. Hear now this word of the Lord. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the power of your word. But we do know we need the Holy Spirit. We know that we are dull. We know that we cannot hear it without the Spirit enlightening, without the Spirit anointing it. And that's what we pray, Father. That's what we beg you. Father, I beg you for your Spirit to anoint my words. I pray for your spirit to open each one of our hearts, each one of our ears to hear from you, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray this is not just an academic exercise. This is not just an entertainment. Lord, this is an encounter with you. And I pray, Father, that we will be changed by this encounter. We pray that you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I became a Christian as an adult. I was in my mid-20s. And by this time, I had actually been pretty successful in my career. I had, my company had, had sent me off to get my master's degree. I had been promoted to a, a project manager, really in charge of one of the, the flagship products that our plant uh, produced. I was in my mid-20s. I was the youngest person at this level in the entire division. I was managing multi-million dollar projects and had people, leadership responsibility over people who were you know, 20, even 30 years older than me. And the reason I was able to progress so quickly and, and, and be on the fast track was not because of my stellar academic skills. I was not a very good student as an undergrad. As a matter of fact, the only reason that I got into this program at Lehigh for the Masters was because my company was, was uh, sponsoring me. My, my grades alone, I would not have been able to get into it. And it wasn't because of my technical skills as an engineer. I was actually a very mediocre engineer at best. And at Ingersoll Rand, the company I worked for, this was a mechanical engineering company. So the best and brightest engineers, mechanical engineers, were at this company. And these were some of them working on projects that I had leadership responsibility over. So the reason wasn't my skill, wasn't my intelligence. The reason for my success was really a way of thinking that I picked up from my, from my father. And my two brothers also have this same way of thinking. And both of them are very successful in their careers as well. See, all four of us, all four of us at some point or another in our career were in leadership positions directing the work of people who, from a technical perspective, were much better than us, much smarter than we were. So this characteristic that we all had is this really an ability to get things done. Uh, we were, the way I would describe it is extremely proactive. We were creative, uh, very customer-focused, uh, on you know, like a laser beam on what is going to help the customer best in the situation. And we did whatever was needed to get to, to achieve our goals. And we're constantly thinking, how can I improve this process? How can I make it better? How can I do it faster? How can I do it less expensive, better quality? 
And we're very focused on, on constantly improving. This was not good enough. We had to continue to get better and better. And we challenged the way things were done, uh, uh, being innovative, being creative, thinking outside the box. And this creativity, this wasn't just limited to my own goals for, for, for a project. I also was just, just as creative in, in advancement of my own career. See, I would constantly volunteer for these high-visibility projects. You know, everyone had a lot of work to do. Yeah, I had a lot of work to do, but I saw that next project, and I volunteered for this next project. So it would be put me in a position when promotions came, I would be the one they would know. For example, I was on this, uh, I was, uh, when the manager of the team that I was on, when he was, was removed and they were bringing another person in, there was about a month time before the new manager would come in. So what I did is I volunteered. I said, I'll take care of all the administrative tasks that the manager did. Now, I knew I wasn't getting promoted. This, the guy who's getting this job had you know, more experience than I was alive. But I knew that this would get me visibility. This would prepare me for the next promotion. And this is the way that I thought. Now, now, while this, and actually even, even after becoming a Christian, I would still do this. Even, even my motivation changed. I wasn't promoting myself. I wasn't promoting my, my own ambition. I sought to serve others. I sought to serve God and glorify God. But I still had this aggressive and this, this innovative way to my work. And it naturally led to promotion. It naturally led to progression in leadership positions. Now, while this personality trait was beneficial in my secular career and, and, and it was beneficial in my personal advancement, it had the potential to be deadly, had the potential to be deadly in ministry. And I had to be very careful as when, I became, when I came into ministry. See, innovation and creativity, when applied to theology, when applied to the service of God, this will lead to disaster. There are countless heresies. There are countless cults that are the result of innovation, the result of creativity. Remember the names Nadab and Abihu? How many of you recognize those names? Nadab and Abihu. A bunch of you. These are people who are creative. They were innovative. If you don't recognize the names, they're in Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu were priests. They were actually sons of the high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother. And they had been instructed on how to approach God, the, the right way to do sacrifices. And they were shown and they were instructed. And then they decided to do things their own way. They decided to be creative. They offered what was called strange fire or unauthorized fire. Do you think the, the Lord was, was happy with them? Instantly they were killed. Instantly God killed them. Not only were they killed, they weren't even allowed to be buried. He instructed that they be dragged out, their bodies be dragged out of the camp and to be left to rot. See, innovation is not good in ministry. But isn't this our temptation? I know this is my temptation. I've had many well-meaning people suggest to me, oh, you could use all these marketing. People who are, who are good at business, they say, well, well, if we use a little bit of marketing, you know, you can grow your church. You can get a lot of people in here. If you, if you use you know, different types of uh, fundraising strategies, oh, you'll have all the money you need. And you know what? Many times these methods work. Many times these methods will build attendance. They will increase funds. I remember when I was in seminary, Lynn and I went to a, a weekend church planting assessment. And the first thing they showed us as, as church planters, now they were assessing our abilities, but they, they gave us this demographic data. And this data would determine where we would plant a church. They would say, all right, this is, you have to look at an area that's growing. You have to have a certain amount of growth. You have to look at people who would be attracted to your church. Do they live there? You know, and then you have to select what kind of music, what kind of worship style, even what kind of theological focus. All of this is tailored to your target audience. And this, this is even done in our own denomination. And this is our natural tendency. This is my, again, I have to be very careful because that is my natural way of working. 
See, we want to be in control. We want to make something happen. And we can. We can make something happen using our own innovation. We can. We, 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 we always want to do something. And we can make it work. But the question is, is it effective? Is it effective? Does it produce the results that God wants to produce? And even the apostles, I think, face this temptation. And this is what we see in our New Testament reading. So if you look at the 2 Corinthians 4 passage, this is, this is uh, Paul speaking here. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, and the ministry is the ministry of the gospel entrusted to the apostles, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, Paul refused to be creative. He refused to tamper with God's word. He refused to practice cunning. He could. He was a smart guy. He could have done it. This was a temptation. The temptation is don't trust God's word. That we, that we even have to, to hide God's word. We can't, we can't use God. We have to tamper with it. We have to make it more palatable to the unbelievers. We need to frame it, and people do this all the time. We need to frame it in a way that the unbeliever will accept, a way that will appeal to the unbeliever's fallen worldview. See, some people will avoid, some people will ignore large portions of God's word because these portions oppose the prevailing cultural narrative. Many will not outright deny God's word, but they'll, just, they'll avoid it. And what it is, they don't trust it. Rather, what they do is they trust their own pragmatism. They trust their own creative understanding of what will appeal to the target audience. <clears throat> Verse 11 of, of Isaiah 55 gives us the reality, a reality that every Christian should understand, must fully understand, especially every pastor, everyone who's involved in ministry must fully understand. Verse 11 says that God's word that goes out from God's mouth shall not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which God has purposed and shall succeed in the thing for which he has sent it. See, God's word has power. It has real power, supernatural power. It will accomplish its purposes. And only God's word, only God's word can impart spiritual life on that which is spiritually dead. See, our words, our innovations, our marketing, our demographic studies, they have no spiritual power. And sadly, sadly, so many churches, so many pastors, those who are commissioned by God to feed his sheep, feed his sheep with his word, through their own innovation, through their own creativity, through their own pragmatism, they end up only entertaining the goats rather than feeding the sheep. But my friends, God's word alone, God's word alone has the spiritual power to be this, this food to strengthen God's sheep and has the power to transform those goats into sheep. Only God's word. And oftentimes we don't believe God's word has any power at all. We don't believe it because we don't see it working in our timeline. We don't see people responding. We don't, we don't, we, we don't see people to, to, to get it or to understand it. And this is why we are so tempted to change it, to, to, to change our approach, to use creativity, to use marketing, to use demographic studies, and all these worldly means to produce the response we want in unbelievers. But this will not work. We must wait for God. We must do things God's way. We must trust his means. Paul tells us the reason for the lack of response in the unbelievers in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and following. He says, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, it says the gospel is veiled to the unbelievers. They're unable to see it. 
The text says that the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers, so they're not able to see the light of the gospel. What is this God of this world? Well, I think the God of this world is, is, the, is really the, the forces that oppose God. And I think these forces can be separated into, into three categories. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We've talked about these before. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's look at these in reverse order. Let's look at the devil. There are real spiritual beings. I mean, this is not a popular to say in our, in our um, sophisticated modern Western world, but there are real demons. There is a real devil, real spiritual beings. It's not fantasy. It's not mythology. And these beings oppose God. These beings hate us because we are in God's image. They want to destroy us. And these beings have power. They have real power. It's limited power, thankfully limited by God, but it's much greater power than we have. And they have the power to confuse us. They have the power to harass us. They have the power to trick us into believing lies. Believing lies about God, believing lies about ourselves. Lies that are contrary to the truth that is revealed in the scripture. This is what we can believe. And they are giving us these, these, these lies that are opposed to the truth of God's word. So the next force that blinds the minds of the unbelievers is the flesh. Well, the flesh is, is, is simply our natural sinful desires. And the reason we allow ourselves to be confused and deceived by demonic beings is that these demons often will appeal to our flesh. They will appeal to our own sinful desires. They will tell us what we want to hear. They'll tell us that these desires that we have, they're good. We don't need to fight against them. We don't need to repent of them. They, these are our authentic selves. And we should indulge these things. And, and, and God wants us to be happy. God made us this way. And God wants us to be happy. This comes from the pit of hell. And we listen to it. We don't think about it because we want to do it anyway. And this is what the demons, they'll tell us. And because our sinful flesh, we'll fall for these demonic lies. The third force that blinds the minds of the unbelievers is the world. And this is really a worldview, a worldview of thinking that is prevalent among unbelievers. It rejects God. It rejects God's sovereignty. It rejects God's authority. It claims that we are the authority. We are autonomous. We are, we are the measure of all things. That we are gods. That's basically the worldview that you will have. It's opposed that we are gods. We can do whatever we want. Do it your way. And all of these three things taken together, they blind the unbeliever. They blind the unbeliever to the proclamation of God's word. And you see that if we use our own creativity, if, if, if we appeal to our own innovation, if we appeal to really worldly means, we neglect the supernatural word of God. Do you see how this only enforces these things, the world, the flesh, and the devil? It, 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 it enforces this thinking, this worldview in, in, in the unbeliever. It actually further will increase the blindness of the gospel. Now, we can, we can get a lot of people, <clears throat> we can get a lot of noise, but it's still going to be blind. It's not going to, it's not going to have a supernatural response. Only God's word. Only God's word has the supernatural power to remove this blindness. And we need the power of the word. The last four verses of Isaiah 55, they show us this power of the word in action. And these four verses about God's word accomplishing his purposes. God's word will not return to him empty. And what we see in these four verses, and, and this is our outline, for, if you guys take notes, this is our outline for this morning, is that the word of God, and the word of God only, has first the power to convert, has the power to convert. Second, the word of God, and the word of God only, has the power to sustain. And the word of God, and the word of God only, has the power to prosper. 
See, only God's word can convert the unbeliever to a believer. Only God's word can spiritually sustain the believer in this fallen world. And only God's word can prosper the believer both in this world, but more importantly for all eternity. So let's start and let's look at the power to convert. Take a look at the last verse of this chapter, verse 13. It says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And here what we see in, in poetic description is transformation. Transformation. God, by the, by the power of his word, he is taking what is useless, what is harmful, and he's making it useful. He is making it good. Right? Instead of a thorn, a thorn is useless, a thorn is harmful. He is making a cypress, a, a beautiful tree that is, that is good and beneficial. And we see the same thing that we see the poetic parallelism in the next line, which basically says the same thing. Instead of a briar, which again is a, is a thorn, we make a myrtle, a good plant, a good tree. And next we see here that the entire motivation of the person who is converted changes. See, instead of like, like I talked about how I was, before I was a believer, I was seeking my own advancement. I was seeking my own glory. What we see here is instead of seeking and making a name for ourselves, we shall, as the text say, make a name for the Lord. See, instead of seeking our own interests, we are interested in God's interests. We are interested to serve the Lord. We are interested to bring him glory. And this change that takes place from being useless to being useful, from being, from being dead to being alive, from being self-serving and, and, and self-glorifying to, to God-serving and God-glorifying, this is a permanent change, a permanent change. It's an eternal change. As the text says, it's an everlasting change, a change that shall not be cut off. See, the briars, they'll be cut off. The thorns will be cut off, cut off and tossed into the fire. That's what Scripture tells us. But the fruitful tree, the fruitful branches, they will never be cut off. Rather, they'll be pruned to produce even more fruit. And God's word, and God's word alone, has the power to take that which is spiritually dead and make it spiritually alive. And in this chapter, God's word calls us to come to the waters. Come to the waters to be satisfied, to, to have our thirst quenched. And these waters really are the only place that we can be ultimately satisfied. And this is simply a, a poetic way of saying, come to Christ. That's what this is called. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and be satisfied. Christ is the only one in which we can be satisfied. Only in Christ can our deepest longings be satisfied. This is a call to come to Christ. And it's a call to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. It is to be united to Christ by faith alone. It's, it's a call to, to trust that Christ by his death on the cross has paid the penalty for our sins. All those who are in Christ, it's, 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 a, it's a call to trust that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's a, it's a call to trust that, that in Christ we're no longer God's enemies, but we're his beloved children. And in Christ we have unlimited access, like we prayed before, we have unlimited access to our Heavenly Father as he lavishes out his, his riches and his blessings upon us, his beloved children. And it's to trust that Christ, that in, that in Christ there is nothing, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not death, not life, nor heights, nor depths, nor angels, or demons, or tribulation, or distress, or danger, or famine, or poverty, or violence. Scripture tells us that actually in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And this transformation can not occur by innovation. This transformation cannot occur by any creativity we use. It cannot occur by any marketing we use. It cannot occur by our demographic studies. It can only happen by the supernatural power of God's holy and living word. 
<clears throat> so this is the first thing we say. The supernatural converting power of the word. But that's not all. The second thing we see in this passage is the supernatural, spiritual, sustaining power of the word. Take a look at verses 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In verse 10, we see God's word here is compared to rain and snow that comes down from heaven and waters the earth. And you just got to love how God uses the physical world to provide for us the analogies, to provide for us the illustrations of these spiritual principles. The rain and snow, they are, they are essential for physical life. Right? Without rain, without snow, without moisture, you have a desert. Life is not possible without water. Well, likewise, spiritual life is not possible without the living water of God's word. It's interesting that in verse 1, we see an invitation to come to the waters, the living waters. And in verse 10, the waters actually are coming to us. The living water is given to us through the rain and the snow by God. And the living water in verse 1 is Christ. The water of the, of the rain and the snow is in verse 10 are God's word. And I think this, this shows really how tightly God identifies with his word. In fact, in, in, in our assurance of pardon, we saw this from John chapter 1, Christ himself is called the word of God. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think John is equating Christ with scripture exactly. We don't believe the Bible is itself divine, but there is this tight connection. God's power is seen in his word. God's character is seen in his word. God's will is seen in his word. And look at the specific result of God's word going forth as as represented by rain and snow. It says that it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Again, this is poetry. This is a poetic representation, I think, of the sustaining power of God's word. God provides here both our current needs, that's the bread, that's what we would eat now, bread for the eater, but also our future needs in the seed for the sower. I mean, you think about it. If you took all the grain, right, and you made it into bread now, you have lots of bread, you get, you get fat and filled, but you have nothing to produce further crops. But God's word not only sustains us now, but it provides the seed for the future sustenance. And in this we can trust. So this provides us comfort. So why does this provide us comfort? Because we worry. We all worry. We are fearful. We worry about today. We worry about tomorrow. Will I be able to pay that big bill that I got? Will I I be able to pay that medical expense that I have? That unexpected repair that I didn't think, you know, my car died. I need my car to get to work. How am I going to pay for that? We worry about this. We worry about now. We worry about the future. Will I be able to to pay for my kids to go to college? Will I be able to afford to retire? We worry. And and yes, I'm not saying we have to plan. We ought to plan. We ought to be wise stewards of the money the Lord has trusted with us. But the reality is there are so many things, so many things that are outside of our control, so many things that can go wrong and negate even the best planning that we make. And this causes us to worry. But these things are not beyond God's control. And God's word provides us the comfort. It provides us the confidence to move forward into the unknown. We don't have everything laid out for us. It gives us the confidence to move forward in obedience to his word, obedience to him. 
And some of the most comforting words God uses to sustain us are Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, seek after these things. And your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, I do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And God will provide for today. He provides the bread for today. God will provide tomorrow. He provides the seed for tomorrow. See, God has the power. He has the power to sustain his people in this fallen world. But not only are we sustained, not only are we sustained in this fallen world, God's not simply preserving us. He's not just giving us the bare minimum we need to survive. God doesn't have this, this scarcity mentality you know, that, that, that I, have, I have to preserve what I'm giving to because I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. No. God intends to richly bless us, and he intends for us to richly bless those around us. And this brings us to our final point in this passage. God's word has the power to prosper the believer, both in this world and for all eternity. Take a look at verse 12. It says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. See, for the Christian, for the person who is a, a new creation in Christ, who is, who is united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. For the saint who, who regularly feeds on God's word and is strengthened by his means of grace. His means of grace are, are the word read, the word preached, prayer, worship, the sacraments. This tells us for that person, for that, for that believer, he shall go out in joy. And this joy is a supernatural joy. It's a supernatural joy that comes from the Holy Spirit who indwells in the believer. And this joy is increased and it is strengthened when we spend time with God, when we spend time in his word, when we spend time in worship and fellowship with other believers, in prayer. And most importantly, it's a joy that's not to stay put. It's a joy that's not to be hoarded. It's not to be enjoyed privately. It's just me and, me and Jesus. No. It's a joy to go out into the world. It's a joy to be shared. It's a joy to, to infect all those we come in contact with. Everyone who comes in contact with should become more joyous because they came in contact with our joy. That's the joy. And it's a joy that always points to its source. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has, he is revealed in his inerrant word. It says, we shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And this is peace. This peace is, first and foremost, the peace that we have with God himself. This peace that comes through the reconciliation of the gospel. But this peace is not just between the believer and God. It's a peace that, just like the supernatural joy, this peace will go forth and infect the whole world. See, through our proclamation of the gospel, through our trust in God's word, uh, through our faithful proclamation in both word and deed, 
the peace of God, the peace that we have will spread to others. It too will, they will have, it will be like that infection. They too will have this peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can then have, they can have peace with God. And we can then have peace with each other. See, those who are united to Christ can also be united in Christ. See, we have peace with each other because we have peace first and foremost with God. And this, my friends, this is our purpose. This is the purpose of the Christians. This is our goal, basically to see others united to Christ, to see souls come to Christ, to see families, to see our cities, to see our state, to see our nation, see the entire world come to Christ. That is our goal. And when the gospel brings an end to our rebellion against God, when the, when the blood of, of, of Christ brings reconciliation with God, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin, repentance, and, and, and fleeing to Christ in, in, in faith, then the entire world will be infected. Then the curse on the creation, a curse uh, which is a result of our rebellion, the curse of the fall will be reversed. We will see the reality that, that we see here in poetic form in the, last, uh, in the rest of verse 12, which is the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing. And the trees of the field, they shall clap their hands. An amazing imagery that we see here. And this, what we're seeing is, is the, <clears throat> the creation is personified here as mountains that are singing and, and trees that are clapping their hands. And basically what this represents is the, is the creation rejoicing. Now the creation now is, 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 is groaning. It's currently groaning. And why is it groaning? It's groaning under the futility of sin that was forced upon it because of the fault, because of our sin, it's forced on the creation. But this is showing it's going to be reversed. It's going to be joyful. There's going to be singing mountains and trees clapping hands. And the promise of God's word here is that the futility will one day end, that the the curse will one day be reversed, the the fall will one day be no more. Now we pray, we pray that we see this, at least in part, now as the gospel goes forth. But we know, we know for certain that we will see it when Christ returns and when he ushers in his eternal kingdom. We know that through God's word and, and through the power of God's word that we will have this eternal prosperity. But my friends, it's not here yet. It is not here yet. We are still very much in this fallen world. We are still very much subject to the, the trials of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's a temptation. And, and we all face this temptation. A temptation to force God's hands. A temptation to rush the coming of the kingdom by our own power. There's a temptation to turn to our our own creativity, to turn to our own initiative, to turn to our own innovation to bring about those conversions, to provide for our own physical and our own spiritual needs, and to bring about this, this temporal and this eternal prospect. There is that temptation. But my friends, we do not have the power. These attempts to force God's hand by our own means will be futile at best and counterproductive at worst. What we must do is that we must do it God's way. We must trust God's mean, must trust his word. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is power. There is eternal power in the word of God and in the word only. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess that we often do try to do things on our own. We try to force your hand. We don't have patience. We don't wait for you. Lord, help us to realize that there is only power in your word. And Lord, that our job is to be faithful, to seek first the kingdom of God and trust that all the things that we need, all the things that we desire, all the things to bring you glory will be added onto us. Father, we pray that you will give us that faith. Give us that faith and trust in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.